A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV... This is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question, where we try to understand the complicated world we're living in and the crazy things that are happening by asking questions, and by listening to people who really know what they're talking about. At times, it may lead to some pretty uncomfortable conversations. But stick with me, everyone. Let's all learn together. When I told people about my plans to interview my next guest, the response was overwhelming. Everyone I talked to, regardless of their age, pretty much lost it. In fact, my 22-year-old assistant, Adriana, started crying when she heard the news. Not that I blame her. My inner seven-year-old was also freaking out about the chance to interview someone who, even after more than six decades, continues to delight kids of all ages through some of the most iconic characters to ever grace the big screen. Like Mary Poppins. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. Or my personal favorite, Maria, the nun in training turned governess who captures the heart of one Captain Von Trapp in pre-World War II Austria. The hills are alive with the sound of music. That's right. I got to sit down with the one and only Julie Andrews, who recently published memoir number two about her life in Hollywood, motherhood, and her marriage to the late Blake Edwards. Yeah, he's one cool cat too. He directed all those Pink Panther movies, among others. But back to Julie's book, which she co-authored with daughter Emma Walton Hamilton. It's called Homework, and it's a funny, moving, surprisingly relatable account of a woman figuring out her place in the world. Aren't we all? We talked about memoir writing, how therapy can change your life, supporting a spouse battling addiction, and her friendships with legends like Carol Burnett and Elizabeth Taylor, all in an effort to answer my next question. When and how did Julie Andrews become the icon she is today? Julie, I'm so excited to have you here to be with you. And I cannot tell you how many people were even more excited than I am right now. <laughs> I've been looking forward to seeing you all day. You Katie. have legions of fans. And what I found so striking is everyone from your contemporary and my contemporaries to... To young kids that only remember the Princess Diaries. Well, no, who live for the sound of music. My assistant, Adriana, has 13 copies of the sound of music and went to the sound of music sing-along for her birthday. Everyone in my office was so pumped that I was doing this. So thank you. (laughs) It's a great pleasure. Let's talk about this memoir. Your first one came out in 2008. That's right. Um, So it's been 11 years. Why did you decide to publish the second installment now? And is there a time frame you had in mind, or is this just how long it took? Well, no, it it didn't quite take 11 years, but it did take (laughs) about three. The uh, publishers were patiently waiting 
for it and postponing for me when a day job got in the way of writing. Right. But I couldn't have written it without my lovely daughter, Emma, who actually helped me with the first memoir as well. And she's the most wonderful collaborator. We've written about 30 books. I know. Altogether. I yeah. know. 30 of those children books, That's right. right. Yeah. And two of these memoirs. And she's the nuts and bolts, and I'm all the sort of flights of fancies and chapter endings. And, of course, it's a story about m- my life. And she did a lot of interviewing. And we referred to the journals that I kept over the years. And, look, thank God for stuff online that was, you know, right? forever there on the Internet. Yes. You have been journaling for a very long time. Quite a long time. I'm curious. I'm writing a memoir right now. It's a fascinating experience because it's like therapy, but you're the therapist and the patient. I know. And what to keep in what to not include? Do you get, um, a, a, you know, what attitude should it be? What, right, the what tone. What voice should it have? Right. Exactly. And, and also, I think it's it's emotional because you're reliving mm-hmm. some very happy times and yeah. some very difficult times as well. I couldn't agree with you more. And somebody said to me that writing a memoir is like living your life all over again. And right. it is. And did you keep journals? Uh, I didn't. No. I remember when I got my job on the Today Show, Jean Shalit, who I adored, yes. uh, said, listen, I've got one piece of advice. Keep a journal. And I said, that's great advice, Jean. And then I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had. I wish I had. Well, in the time that I began, it was a way for me of keeping the good stuff and, and writing down my thoughts so that I had room for others uh, because things were coming at me so fast and so furiously. And you were really before your time because now it's considered so therapeutic. Yes. To And it was for that reason, I think, that I did write. But just to uh, get it out of my head and onto the page so I didn't have to hold it as much in my head. I know that, as you mentioned, your daughter Emma and you are, are quite a team. How does the process work with Emma, Julie? Does she help you? Does she read journal entries and say, oh, mom, you should really write about this? Or how do, how do you she collaborate? She started with an intensive research and made me a timeline of about 30 years. Now, you can imagine, you know, what did I do when and where and so on. And any single thing that she or I could remember went into that timeline. And then she began to interview me about certain important pieces and that would be transcribed and then we'd cut and edit and paste and I'd change what didn't feel right. But also once she got to the diaries, we decided it would be great to just excerpt from the diaries, but cut and prune, of course, but because they were the absolute truth at the time, so why not use them? And that helped a lot. And the internet helped a lot. (laughs) And old clippings and letters, and we interviewed the family, uh, my family, you know, all the kids. And just in general, patched all the places in that we couldn't quite remember, or but somebody did somewhere. But thank God for the initial timeline. And then, of course, she was this hugely encouraging presence at my side at all times. And there were very stressed times when we when we would both get kind of tearful and, and just somewhat depressed. And she, she made a point of, she said to me, Mom, you didn't know it, but I asked you all the difficult questions in the morning so that we could end our day a little later in the day on a high note so you didn't go to bed and worry too much. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. She's so dear. She that's is. a lot of mommy and me time. Did you guys ever fight? No, not fight. Uh, there were huge heated discussions at times, but... We don't actually fight at all. We finish each other's sentences and we uh, laugh a lot. But we've always felt that we get into an argument about something and then one of us realizes that the best idea wins. And we have such mutual respect for each other that it seems to work out really well, Katie. Well, you obviously did a wonderful job. And as you say, I think the excerpts from your journals really provide a certain Really rhythm and, and, and lyricism, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, I'd love you to read one of them about an experience you had that really brought back memories of when you were on, in vaudeville. That's right. I was making a film with my second husband, Blake Edwards, whom I was married to for like 41 years and knew him for 44 before he passed away. But we were making our first film together, and it was in Dublin, and there was a scene that I had to shoot 
at the Gaiety Theatre, which was one of the great old, beautiful music hall theatres. And my upbringing from age 12 was in Vaudeville. And I entered that theatre and picked my way over the film cables that we were going to be using and so on. And this is what I wrote. Suddenly, I remembered Monday mornings and band calls, getting my orchestrations down on stage in time for rehearsal, placing them to the right of the band books already down ahead of mine, that's the other turns on the bill, and waiting my turn, unpacking the steamer trunks each week and climbing endless stairs to the wardrobe room at the top of the theatre in order to press my theatrical gowns, the halting, uneasy first performance on Monday nights and the difficult second houses on uh, Saturday evenings, the smell of paint, turpentine and dust, the depressing staleness and the awful pretense of glamour. And that's the way those early days of touring endlessly around England really was. And that was from a diary yes, entry it was or a journal diary entry. entry. Yes, and I'm so glad I kept it because it brought it back very vividly for me and I just decided to keep it in the book. And the writing is beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know you write about your childhood in the first book, but I want to talk a little bit about that because the title of this book is Homework. Yes. And it seems to be a nod to the incredible amount of work it takes to build and maintain healthy and happy relationships with your kids, your spouse, your aging parents. And the work. And the work, and the work. I know family, though, has always been so incredibly important to you, Julie. Yes, it has. And I wondered, is that because of your childhood and some of the challenges you faced when you were a little girl? I think it definitely comes from all that. Divorced parents and also difficult stepfather in my life and missing my brother. We were split quite early in our lives and just so many things, learning on my feet how to sing and uh, or learning vocally how to sing, I guess. Um, also long separations, at least a week at a time when I went on the road on my own eventually when I was about 15 and I didn't get educated because I needed to earn money for the family and so on. So yes, home meant the most enormous amount to me, getting home, being safe, holding them all together, helping to hold us all together. You have an incredible maternal instinct. Well, I think it was so necessary. I didn't want to go backwards in life either. My parents tried, my mother and stepfather tried very hard to better our lot. We were unbelievably poor, but eventually they got a wonderful house and we didn't want to lose it. And helping to make money and contribute to that was essential if we wanted to stay in that place. And I did. It had a garden and... I could play in the garden so often and love to do that. So you held on to that and said, this is what I want for my family. Yes, and I want uh, a sense of, of permanence and uh, a rooted sense, but also it's to do with warmth and love and so many things that bind people together and makes for a gentler, kinder, happier world. And so the first memoir was called Home, and was much easier in a way, although it was hard to write. It started from nothing and built to a kind of big conclusion when I was just about to go to Hollywood to do Mary Poppins. It went through my vaudeville years and my Broadway years. But this book started at a high and then sort of went right and left rather than from low to high. And it was a much more difficult thing to write because there was so much that I was learning about I decided eventually that I would call it homework again the need to balance home and the enormous amount of work that it takes to learn a new craft about filmmaking in this case um, and being in a new place and again being away from what I felt as home it became home eventually you start with this trajectory of going to Hollywood. So I want to ask you about getting tapped for Mary Poppins. You were on Broadway. Yes. I... And you were sought out. Well, I was in Camelot with Richard Burton and the Robert Goulet and a wonderful company. St. Genevieve, St. Genevieve, it's Guinevere, remember me. Beautiful music, lovely, lovely musical. The company heard that Walt Disney was in the audience 
and I got word that he'd like to come back and say hello. And Were I you thought, freaked out? Whoa. Did you find out before the performance? Yes, and that he was there. And I thought, well, how lovely to be so social and kind. <laughs> and he came backstage, and my then-husband, Tony Walton, was with me in the dressing room. He said he loved the show, and then he began to talk about this live-action animation film that he was planning based on the books of Mary Poppins by P.L. Travers. Would I be interested in coming to Hollywood to learn a little more about what he planned and listen to the music and so on? And I was gobsmacked, <laughs> said, oh, Mr. Disney, I would love to, but I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. And his reply was, well, that's okay, we'll wait. And I had no idea at the time that pre-production in a movie takes so long. And by the time I'd had my lovely daughter, with whom I now write, the film would be ready to roll. And when we, she was about two or three months old, off we went to Hollywood, and I began this vast new career of which I knew nothing and uh, learned on my feet as I went. You had no experience working in oh, film. Oh, excuse me, I have to add a PS to this. Oh. Disney, in the dressing room at Camelot, turned to my then-husband, Tony, and said, and what do you do, young man? And Tony said, you explained he was a designer of sets and costumes, relatively at that time unknown. And Disney said, well, then you bring your portfolio with you when you come to Hollywood. When he saw his portfolio, he hired him on the spot to do the sets, uh, most of the sets, and all the costumes for Mary Poppins. And Tony was nominated for an Oscar, as was I, on that movie. I mean, how extraordinary is that story? I would call that serendipity on steroids. I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. And that seemingly, without being too Pollyanna-ish about it, the story of my life. I, one of my mantras is, are we lucky or what? <laughs> and it's absolutely true. I had to work so fast and learn so hard and race to catch up at everything that was happening, but those opportunities were extraordinary. You had never acted in a movie prior to Mary Poppins. No. Had lots of Broadway experience or some Broadway experience at the time because you were still quite young, Julie. How old were you? Well, I was, I think, about 29 at that point. I felt much younger than that, believe me, Katie. And so you, I know... Looking back on this film, you notice how self-conscious you were in well, that role. Well, I, I was self-conscious, but oddly, looking at what I did on film, I was surprised that it looked pretty normal and that I pulled it off. Although I was scared to death on the first days of filming, you know, how does one behave on film? Uh, on stage, I had a fair inkling of what to do, but film is much more intimate and there's a camera right on your head only and there you are on a vast screen and then it could be a waist shot or it could be an over the shoulder shot and and lots of green screens yes, for Mary Poppins a lot of because so called, much animation yes, in the background. sodium vapor is what they called it at the time yeah and Disney had one of the best screens in Hollywood at the time because all the animation followed long after we'd finished the movie so we had to pretend and imagine and uh, look at birds and be on, and you know, merry-go-rounds. flowers and butterflies and all of that. It must have been great fun, but it must have been a, a pretty steep learning curve for you. Huge. Absolutely huge. And I lapped it up. It took several movies before I felt I began to know uh, what I was doing. And, and you never do. It's a new project every time. And it takes a while to kind of slide into home base, so to speak. And I worked with giants, I mean, wonderful mentors, on Broadway with people like Moss Hart, who was a great guy and adorable and kind and who I believe had been through a great deal himself in his early life and sensed my nerves, my insecurity, and obviously felt there was something I could improve on and worked with me one-on-one -on -one and made me into Eliza Doolittle and, and from then on we were such great friends. When we come back, Julie opens up about her breakout role on Broadway and losing that part in the movie adaptation to Audrey Hepburn. I could have danced all night I could have danced 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Before Julie Andrews made the jump from stage to screen, she first made a name for herself on Broadway with starring roles in The Boyfriend, Camelot opposite Richard Burton, and of course, My Fair Lady. You were in My Fair Lady on Broadway and- For uh, about three and a half years. Yes. Which is a lot. Was that exhausting, by the way? Oh. Day in and day out? Two years on Broadway and roughly 18 months in London. And yes, eight performances a week you don't see daylight on a Wednesday at all because of the two shows and then of course on on the Saturday matinee as well. I would go in certainly mid-morning to prepare for the matinee and I wouldn't see daylight for the rest of the day until I came out and it was dark at 11.30 at night, midnight. And I must say that My Fair Lady is one of the hardest, I think, roles for any actress because you sing, you scream, uh, you talk Cockney. You, 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 there are tremendous dramatic scenes. It's a big marathon every every show, and that show ran three hours. They don't run as long these days, not quite as long. Unfortunately, and I know I I was angry for you did not get cast in the movie because <laughs> they wanted a bigger name, and you weren't yeah. as well known. No, I wasn't known at all outside of Broadway, and if you look at it one way, I was a very uh, small fish in a very big pond on Broadway, and then not known at all in the within the rest of the world. And in those days, movies were made with big stars. And so Audrey Hepburn got the role of Eliza in the movie of My Fair Lady. We became great friends. I just adored her. Oh. I met her. I was so thrilled to Wasn't meet her she once. Gorgeous. <laughs> oh my gosh, she was a a, a UNICEF. Ambassador. Yes, she was. And she came to the Today Show, and she was one of the most charming, gracious people I had ever met. She walked around and shook hands with every single person in the studio. Having said that, it did annoy me on your behalf, Julie, that Marnie Nixon provided her voice <laughs> in My Fair Lady. Well, and I'm like, come on, man. Oh, well, listen, it's very It hard. all worked out. <laughs> hard to be upset when Walt Disney comes along <laughs> not that much later and says, would you like to do Mary Poppins? And in fact, one of the funny moments in your book is the story behind your decision to thank Jack Warner at the Golden Globes for not casting you <laughs> well, in he was My the Fair head Lady. Of, he was the head of the studio at Warner Brothers. He was Warner Brothers for so many years. And uh, I, at the Golden Globes, I did thank him for making it possible by not casting me in My Fair Lady to win the Golden Globe for uh, Mary Poppins. Finally, my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place, Mr. Jack Warner. And to his credit, he did get the joke and he did laugh. I thought my career might be at an end when I said it, but... 
A year later, of course, uh, you were in The Sound of Music. The first three films that I made were not released until I'd finished them. So I was eventually just loving making movies and learning on my feet and, and almost playing in this delicious sandbox. And nothing had been released, so I had no idea that they were going to be as successful as they were. I remember going to The Sound of Music at the Ontario Theatre in Washington, D.C. Really? I was seven years old, and my family, my mom and dad, put us in the station wagon in our Easter Sunday clothes, and we went to a matinee, an afternoon showing of The Sound of Music. Oh. And I was so upset when the Nazis came. I'm not going to lie. That was really traumatic for <laughs> yes. me. But, I mean, just to think of the, how that movie has endured. Yes. I think it's probably one of the most classic movies of all time. But it's got all, all the right values, and it was one of the great, beautiful Hollywood movies that were shot so beautifully. The sound is so great. It was crafted immaculately and directed by a master director. By Robert Wise. Robert Wise, who did West Side Story and Sand Pebbles and so many other wonderful movies. I worked with him in two films, and he was a darling. I know that you were a little lonely when you were filming that movie. You missed mm. your husband. Yeah, well, he because of the success of his work in, in Mary Poppins, he was in instant demand, and he did phenomenal shows on Broadway especially, and he did films. But, I mean, shows like Chicago and Pippin and Will Rogers' Follies, I mean, phenomenal designs and costumes for and very new and fresh and original concepts. And then wonderful movies, too. He did the great Bob Fosse movie, um, what was it called? All That Jazz? All That Jazz, yeah. Wow. He mm. had, I think he won, he did win the Oscar for that one, yeah. An extraordinary career as well. Yes, and he was so busy. So, of course, we were separated a lot, and eventually that did take its toll. We'd known each other since we were 12 and 13 years old. You met in old. your hometown, yes, right? Yes, we both came from the same village on the railway line out of London and um, met very early, and he was my childhood sweetheart. So I think we allowed for each other to grow and to blossom and didn't take into account, well, neither of us really could. We needed money and we had to work and things were happening so rapidly and it took a toll, which was that our marriage failed. I'm happy to say that we are friends to this day and of course we share our beautiful daughter who is the, the daughter that helped me write this book. Emma. Mm. Emma keeps popping up. She does, and she she did and she does, thank do you, God. Do you ever tire of talking about The Sound of Music? Not really. How much fun, though, was it to perform all those extraordinary Rodgers and Hammerstein Phenomenal. songs? Phenomenal. And, well, first of all, singing with a vast orchestra is is magical. My singing teacher once said, Katie that singing with a great orchestra is like being carried aloft in the most comfortable armchair over the orchestra and the sound, and she was absolutely right. That was the great joy, but then to give you my favorite song, I think it has to be one that I didn't sing, and that was Edelweiss, because again, excuse me, it speaks to one's homeland, whoever you are. It's not just about Austria. It's about any place that you call home, you know, bless my homeland forever, is the lyric. And it has one of the classic Richard Rogers melodies. Think of, oh, what a beautiful morning. It's one of those melodies that simply folds back on itself. And it's very simple. And Edelweiss and oh, what a beautiful morning and several others have that quality. And they're timeless. The melody is so clear and clean and simple and lends itself to the most wonderful orchestrations. I wish I had the opportunity to have met Richard Rogers and Oscar yeah, Hammerstein. I know. I mean, just such brilliance. Giants again. I walked with giants. I know the hills were alive with the sound of helicopters. That opening scene was a bit challenging, wasn't it? You would never in a million years <laughs> it's the, know it. was the last thing we shot in the movie, too. And, and, and it was tough. Tell me about how hard it was. Well, simply, the, the very, very first time that I'm revealed on film is walking as a very small speck 
across a field and making this turn before I begin to sing. That's all I had to do was walk and make a turn. And it was shot from a helicopter. I started at one end of the field and the helicopter with a very brave cameraman strapped to the side of it through the door that was no longer there. And this this thing was uh, from the other end of the field was coming at me sort of like a giant crab in a way sideways with this wonderful cameraman hanging out the side of it and the camera strapped to his chest. And I walked toward him and he helicoptered his way toward me. And then I made the turn and then the helicopter went up and around me to go back for another take because either I wasn't on my marks or he didn't feel he'd gotten the right shot or it wasn't, I mean, we had to have a few in the <laughs> in the bank in the case of an accident yeah, and, and, and focus and so on. And every time that helicopter went around me to go back to his end of the field, the downdraft from those helicopter engines just flattened me into the grass. <laughs> did, did you save the outtakes? Uh, they have been saved. I've seen one of them, but I don't know who has it. I wish, uh, you know, if anybody out there that knows where they are, I'd love to see it again. I would love to see I it as well. I have seen it, though. And, I, you know, after the third or fourth time, you, you get so angry that you're you know, spitting grass and, and some mud and so on. And you, I kept signaling to the helicopter pilot, could he make a wider turn? And I only got a thumbs up, and let's do another one, you know. <laughs> up next, Julie gets candid about her 40-year marriage to the brilliant but complicated Blake Edwards and reminisces about some old friends, including Elizabeth Taylor and Carol Burnett. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way, is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I want to ask you about Blake Edwards, who seems like oh, please he, do. he was the coolest guy. He was. Was he? Charismatic, wicked black sense of humor um i mean wickedly dark and uh and may i say he was he was he was sexy yes he was <laughs> oh believe me uh he certainly was and i miss him dreadfully but as he'd be the first to say what else are you going to say because i'm a darling <laughs> well you know i think did you learn much about balancing your your career and your marriage because of growing sort of apart from your first husband tony 
And what did you learn that allowed you to keep your marriage to Blake intact? I think probably as is true with most second marriages, you really, really this time want to make it work. It does take two people. You can't just have one wanting it or anything like that, but it takes two to work at it. And I think we both wanted to stay together and I'm so thrilled that we did. I I adored him. He was very complicated, uh, charismatic, complicated, and uh, had a, a very depressive personality at times. Right. Uh, it wasn't manic depressive. He was just prone to depression and, and also later in his life towards opioids and things like that, but tried so hard to get off them and get back to the way he was when we first met. And you can forgive anybody for saying sorry and trying that hard. You write a lot about addiction in your family with with unflinching honesty. And I just thought if it helped anybody identify and say, well, then I can I can manage that too. About your stepfather, your mother, both mm, abusing alcohol. Alcohol, yeah. Your brother was a drug addict. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, Blake Edwards had become reliant on painkillers. Well, he had issues, certainly. Were you at all hesitant to do that? Yes. And I, I hope I showed every side of Blake because it wasn't just that. I couldn't have borne it if, if it had been. I wanted to show all the humor and the, the laughter that we shared. And uh, it was great uh, at times. And those are the things I cling to and remember. And I, I mean, I still adore him to this day, no matter what. I know that you're also very honest about therapy, because this is something that you started doing when you were living in Los Angeles in the 1960s. Mm. And you talk about what a positive impact it had on your life. People didn't talk openly about being in therapy no, back they then. In fact, it's a, it's a relatively new phenomenon. Well, I don't know how new it is these days, but I remember my mother saying, what? You know, thinking that you only went into therapy if you were totally mad or something like that. Certainly in my hometown in Walton-on-Thames, nobody, I think, at that time talked about therapy. But I wanted to clear the chaos in my head, and it made me understand so much more about my childhood and put it in perspective and forgive so much about my family and my parents and and understand people a lot more. I think I was a better wife and mother and so many things because of getting rid of that garbage that you carry around that you don't need to carry around and staying focused on essentials. You were racked with with self-doubt and I know that that you had imposter syndrome really throughout much of your what life. Is it? Until I don't never heard that before. Well, it's sort of yes. not thinking you deserve this, something that or the other. and yeah. that you don't understand why you're being I celebrated. I think that came more from not having had an education. I'd love to have gone to college and, and had a really good education, but that very smart therapist realized that's what I needed and eventually decided to help give me one. And in fact, he really became your de facto college Merlin. professor, yes, right? Yes, he did. He was Merlin. He could tell me about anything A very expensive college professor, I might add. <laughs> worth <laughs> worth it all, believe me. So you all would talk about history and art and all kinds yes, of things. and geology and astrology and, and just anything. He'd bring it up or I'd bring it up and God, I wish I'd absorbed 100% more, but what I did get was phenomenal. And did it give you a lot of self-confidence then, feeling that you were more learned, Well, at if least you I will. could converse about things a little better. And yes, it did help enormously, of course. You mention a lot of very special people in this book, so I thought we could play a name game. Let's spill the tea, as the young people say today. Okay. I guess that means let's dish. Mm-hmm. Um, Carol Burnett. Great chum. Godmother to my daughter, Emma. We are such good friends. I think there's something that's very similar in our childhoods. Uh, she also came from an alcoholic family, and we just bonded instantly, like two kids that discover they live on the same block and We've been friends for years. You played a prank on Mike Nichols that backfired miserably or hilariously. Yeah, right? hilariously, not miserably. No, he 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 
won that one hands down, yes. Tell it's us what happened. Well, it's oh, in the we? book. Okay, that's a good tease. <laughs> Get the book, buy yeah. the book. You talk about the ultimate Hollywood moment with Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. It's on page 78. Do you mind reading that? No, I don't. Yeah, Let's it's a very over. sweet. It's not very long. I was talking about the opening night of Sound of Music in New York, I think. And I, I wrote, after the screening, during the crush in the lobby, I suddenly saw Betty Davis approaching me. I had never met her before, though I was a huge fan. As we shook hands, she said, you, my dear, are going to be a very big star. I had always imagined that she might be crisp or aloof, but her warmth and generosity just bowled me over. That must have been an incredibly exciting it moment for a young actress. Yeah, and I've, I've always been such a fan of hers and her work. And she was funny and lovely. And I mean, we didn't talk for very long, but what a generous thing to say. You mentioned Elizabeth Taylor. Talk about bold-faced names. I've always wanted to be you, Julie Andrews, but you describe a scene on Boxing Day. That's right. On vacation in Europe. And you are, talk about bold-faced names. I mean, Noel Coward, you mentioned. He was, we went to supper with David Niven and Noel Coward and Richard Burton. And oh, my God. Elizabeth Taylor. Well, excuse me. Well, I did, <laughs> I did obviously, I knew Richard uh, and a little bit uh, Elizabeth from, from having done Camelot with Richard. And Noel Coward had come backstage several times, so I felt I knew him. David Niven was a good friend of Blake's and had done Panthers, so it was a good group. Must have been fun. What mm. was Elizabeth Taylor like? I got to interview her once, by the way. Well, she okay, me, she, what was she okay, like? I'll tell you what she, I mean, you were friends. I just talked to her, and she taught me how to keep lipstick from getting on my teeth. Oh, how do she you, taught tell me, me this tell trick. Me. She said, you take your index finger, and you kind of form an O with your mouth, Mm. And then you just pull your, your finger out of your mouth, and it takes the lipstick off so it doesn't get on your teeth. Whoa. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> yes, thank you. We'll try it uh, but tomorrow morning the, for sure. Was she fun? And I know she was showing off a, a diamond, well, right? Well, she was fun. And she she was um, actually a really good gal. She was a good egg, as they say. I mean, she, she was down to earth in a very good way and she was she, kind of racy right yeah and she'd been through it all but that christmas uh this was boxing day the day after christmas and richard had given her this enormous uh, ring and, and and she just sort of flashed it at us and said look at what richard gave me it's a bit of a giggle isn't it <laughs> and uh, blake said it was enough to sort of make him a communist instantly <laughs> but uh it was she said it with such a smile and a sense of humor you couldn't be upset by it Christopher Plummer, you write that he was a bit out of pocket while filming The Sound of Music. Julie, do tell. Out what does pocket. that mean? Is, uh, did I? Out of <laughs> pocket? Um, what did I mean? Um, well, I think he, he was a little, uh, he, he loved his red wine. And sometimes <laughs> after the day was over, he would drink quite a lot. Is that what you meant? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, but, but my God, he was the glue that really pulled the sound music together because his astringent quality took away so much of that saccharine that I was worried about. Right. And he was such a lovely actor to work with. I mean, he's a great chum. We giggle a lot and remember each other's birthdays and Christmases and things like that. This book goes up to the 1980s, so obviously there is another memoir <laughs> uh, had to, ask, to come right? because you need to talk about all the that you went through when you had the vocal surgery yes. and what that was like and then singing and, in the second princess diaries and discovering a whole new life and a somewhat new career in terms of writing with emma and so on yeah uh, i guess you're saying will there be another book and if you just ask me in about a month when i've recovered from this one <laughs> i'd be thrilled well, I think people never, never get tired of hearing from you and the extraordinary stories of your life. Well, I just know that you know, that phrase, are we lucky or what? I've really been so blessed. My mother used to say, there are hundreds of people out there that can do what you do just as well. So you work hard and, and, and be grateful. And it was great advice. Well, we're, we're lucky because of it. 
I went on a little long and Julie's manager was getting pretty annoyed with me by this point. But before I let her go, I had an important favor to ask. So we were gonna do something really fun. Do you guys, are you okay with time? Yes. We were gonna do just something, Jennifer Garner is such a diehard fan. And so I arranged to surprise her. I met her and interviewed her for my podcast. Can you just call her and say hello real yes. quickly? Yes. Okay. Hello? Hello, is this Jen? Yes. This is Julie this is Andrews, she... Jen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Hello. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I want to tell you I'm a huge fan and love what you do. And and Katie was just telling me that that you were pretty uh, admiring of me too. So I thought, well, let's just have a chat. <laughs> oh my gosh. How are you? Oh. <laughs> Why haven't I, I ever met you, Jen? I would love to and one day. I saw you from afar once, but I couldn't. I couldn't just, you know, put it into words and I couldn't, <laughs> I, I couldn't possibly be normal. And so I just admired, but, um, yes. Jen, am I, am I getting you in the middle of, of dinner of or, yours? or washing up or something like that? Certainly not. Okay. Ms. Andrews, I would pull over and leave my children on the side of the freeway. No, you, you would not. No, you and, would uh, not. <laughs> the, um, is Katie there? Yes, she's on the other other <laughs> end of the phone. Okay, so Jennifer posted watching The Sound of Music and totally fangirling, and it was so cute. And so I had wrote on her Instagram page, I'm interviewing Julie Andrews, come with. And she said, don't mess with me, Katie. <laughs> and so, so we planned this, Jen. So ask her a question, chat for a second, and I'm going to butt out. You know what, Julie Andrews, Miss, um, oh, stop. I have, just I've call raised, me Julie or Jules. You know. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I've raised my kids with you and I, because I was raised on you and I, as was everyone, you know, in the world, <laughs> but here's the thing, your books, oh. I, I love, I mean, the children's Clock books, you is mean completely real to me. I can't wait to read your new book. It's it, I I cannot wait. It's I can't wait. But Proc and the 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 whistle, oh, the last of the really great Wang Doodles. The last of the really great Wang Doodles. I've read aloud twice. Oh. And I I love it. I'm so pleased you do because I loved doing that. It's it's it was it was my second book and it oh gosh that was such a thrill to write it and to see it published and it's stayed in publication too stayed in publication it is a it is in our house we talk about those characters and mandy <laughs> and the dump truck and that you know but especially mandy and last of really really great wang doodles well, we, we speak about them like they're family friends and my kids for them to even connect that that you wrote those is so wonderful because it helps them see that you can really be a full person that just because you're a performer it doesn't mean that you that that's all you do they you know they love knowing that 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 um my fair lady and that um mary poppins that all of them are the same person playing someone else and also is an author well, thank, so thank you. you. What a great, great compliment. And uh, it's just so lovely. And I think it means more odd, oddly, uh, uh, I don't mean to be disparaging to anybody else, but when somebody says they like one of my books, it really is a thrill because it's, I'm still learning on my feet about writing, but uh, but I'm thrilled when somebody says they, they loved my book or it was one of their favorites or something. And I'm here talking to Katie today about this second book, of memories and uh, so I, I hope you enjoy that one too for yourself not for your kids <laughs> or how old are your kids now they're 13 10 and 7 well they get around to it one day but uh, you can enjoy this <laughs> one <laughs> well I, I want the I want the two of you to meet and have lunch at some point that would because, be such fun um, 
and maybe I'll I'll join if I'm on the West Coast, and it would be so much You're fun. You're sort of godmother but, here. Yes, know. yes. I feel like oh. I, I I did a little matchmaking. I did a little mitzvah, as they yeah. say. <laughs> All right, lots of love, and we'll see you okay. soon for lunch. Okay, y'all. I'll see, I'll you, see you again, you Jen. Like. I hope I'll meet you again. Much uh, love. Yes, I really do hope so. Much love. Thank you. I can't wait for the book. Thank Bye. you, okay, love. Bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you'd like to know what's happening every morning and have some original content in the form of interviews and inspiring stories, please sign up for our daily morning newsletter called Wake Up Call by going to katiecurric.com. And follow me, of course, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Lauren Bright-Pacheco, Julie Douglas, and Tyler Klang. Our show producers are Bethann Macaluso and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. Associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing is by Dylan Fagan, Derek Clements, and Lowell Berlanti. Our researcher is Barbara Keene. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.